reliable source of income for KPFK. Yes, that's you, making up over 90% of our annual budget. With your gift right now, you could move us closer to our goals and help us shorten on-air fundraising. Please call 818-985-5735 or pledge online at kpfk.org. Thank you. You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and on the web at kpfk.org. KBFK Revel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Good evening. It's the 16th of February, and for tonight's Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, the Fed stiffs California on the COVID check. California pollution just got tougher. Taxpayer Deception Act on the ballot. The Billion Dollar Wind Bond. Marcy Winograd from Santa Barbara. Don DeBar has Washington election meddling. Polina Vasilia brings us non-NATO news. All this and more coming up for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. I'm Hal Lore. No one to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the shelf. In misbehaving, saving all my love for you. The divine Sarah Vaughan, he misbehaving, but maybe that's not true for everybody because as it turns out, one of the pandemic's longest lingering symptoms may be financial. When California took steps in spring 2020 to move thousands of homeless residents into hotels, looking to protect them from COVID-19, it did so believing from federal promises that the U.S. government would foot a large part of the bill. Now it looks like California got stuck with a check following what California officials say is an abrupt about-face from the Federal Emergency Management Agency where cities and counties suddenly are on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars they expected FEMA to cover. And of course, it's coming at a time when budgets are already tight and it's left local governments scrambling. At issue is a letter FEMA sent to the state in October saying as of now FEMA would not pay for hotel stays of longer than 20 days between June 11, 2021 and May 11, 2023. And now that letter will cost more than $300 million collectively, according to an estimate from the Governor's Office of Emergency Services. That means individual cities and counties throughout California are now out of pocket by tens of millions of dollars. Places like Sonoma County has $32 million at risk, while San Diego County has up to $28 million and even more. San Francisco estimates the after-the-fact change in policy will cost them $114 million. Governor Gavin Newsom launched the hotel shelter program, dubbed Project Room Key, in April 2020, when health experts were terrified that California, with its massive homeless population, would see the virus wreak havoc in crowded shelters and unsanitary encampments. So individual cities and counties leased and paid for those hotel rooms with the expectation that FEMA would reimburse them. At first, the federal agency agreed to cover 75% of the cost for eligible expenses, including the rooms and services such as meals, security, and cleaning, and in January 2021, FEMA agreed to reimburse 100% of those costs. In all, RoomKey served about 62,000 people over the course of the pandemic, and when RoomKey launched, FEMA had no rules governing how long someone could stay in a hotel room. California officials claim FEMA didn't set the 20-day limit until October 2023 when they sent a letter defining and redefining their policy but long after the unhoused residents had moved out. In that October letter, FEMA said it capped stays between June 2021 and May 2023 because by that time, transmission rates were down and 20 days was the Center for Disease Control's maximum recommended period of quarantine. 
The October letter insisted FEMA's policy had not changed, despite the assertions of state officials and multiple cities and counties that the state and local officials should have known that FEMA's policy had referred to the CDC guidelines of quarantining for up to 20 days. But there is no evidence FEMA made that 20-day rule explicit prior to October, and Newsom lifted the state's stay-at-home order in June 2021. So the state sent FEMA a letter last month asking the federal agency to reconsider their 20-day payment cap and honoring its commitments. But while California, which serves as a middleman between local officials and FEMA, can put pressure on FEMA, it has no authority to force the federal agency to change its mind. Because there's no doubt that FEMA was advising that the U.S. government would be there to support the need, but now, as with most U.S. government policies, that story has changed. The federal government has seen the size, scale, and expense of the recovery and is simply walking back some of the earlier approvals. FEMA's choice to introduce a new rule years after counties spent the room key money is indefensible, said Susan Ellensburg, president of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. Her county alone lost nearly $16 million thanks to the 20-day rule and FEMA's refusal to reimburse. When Room Key launched in 2020, it was meant as an emergency health measure to prevent homeless Californians from dying on the street or in crowded shelters, and California did not see widespread COVID deaths among its unhoused communities, as experts initially feared. But for now, unfortunately, the message is that California can't count on our federal government to be accountable for promises that have been made and for any money that was spent in reliance on federal promises. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In air quality news... New EPA standards raise the bar on soot taking aim at a form of air pollution that has long been a problem for Californians from Los Angeles to the Bay Area. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced Wednesday that it was tightening national standards for fine particulate matter, a health threat that has been linked to lung and heart disease. EPA Administrator Michael S. Regan said in a news conference that the science is clear. Soot pollution is one of the most dangerous forms of air pollution, and it's linked to a range of serious and potentially deadly illnesses, including asthma and heart attacks. Roughly 30 times smaller than the width of a human hair, fine particulate matter, also called soot or PM2.5, is released from industrial smokestacks, vehicle exhaust, wildfires, agricultural work, and even some forms of cooking. This microscopic debris is small enough to pass into the bloodstream after being inhaled. In announcing the move, the EPA says the tighter standards would prevent thousands of premature deaths and improve the quality of life in disadvantaged communities where residents endure some of the highest concentrations of the pollutant. The updated standard is expected to prevent up to 4,500 premature deaths per year and yield up to $46 billion in net health benefits in 2032, according to federal estimates. But although the vast majority of counties nationwide already comply with new standards, most of California's population live in areas that have failed to meet the old threshold, including Greater Los Angeles, San Diego, the Bay Area, and the San Joaquin Valley. As a result of the new rules, state and local officials will need to take drastic steps to curtail pollution from the world's fifth-largest economy and the nation's largest population, where we have some of the most difficult particulate challenges in the nation. The San Joaquin Valley, a hub of oil drilling and agricultural dust, has long had the highest levels of fine particulate pollution. Bakersfield and Visalia led the nation with an annual average concentration of 17.8 micrograms per cubic meter between 2019 and 2021, according to the American Lung Association. Greater Los Angeles ranked fourth and experienced 14.2 micrograms per cubic meter. And although the region's bustling ports and warehouse goods economy contribute significantly to this pollution, the largest sources are released from its 17 million residents, where the leading source of particulate pollution in Los Angeles is cooking, which releases 11.6 tons per day. Other top sources also include 
residential heating, and road dust from vehicle brakes and tires. The EPA announcement was largely celebrated by environmental advocates who agree the stricter measures would push for some of the most polluted communities to curb harmful emissions and incorporate more zero-emission technology. But some industry leaders voiced their displeasure with the new environmental standards, arguing businesses could face permitting hurdles when they contribute only a fraction of emissions. The EPA's new rule is expected to put 569 counties out of compliance and push many others close to the limit, which threatens economic growth. Compliance with the new standard will be very difficult because 84% of emissions now come from non-industrial sources, like wildfires and road dust, that are costly and hard to control. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. there's been any truth in America, it's that bad old ideas get to become bad new ideas in an election year, and this year is no exception. Because it's indisputable that the decline of state fiscal management in California began with the passage of Proposition 13 in 1978. The Tax Cut Initiative trashed the tax structure that provided most of the revenues needed by localities and school districts undermining local control of spending. It was sold to voters as relief for supposedly suffering middle-class homeowners, but it was largely a scam where the chief beneficiaries have been the richest homeowners and commercial and industrial property owners who have received billions of dollars in property tax breaks at the expense of residential communities. And even today, Prop 13 provisions discourage new government efforts no matter how urgent the problem to be addressed. So it may be unsurprising that the heirs of Proposition 13's proponents are trying to pull another scam on California taxpayers. Their new tool, pushed chiefly by the California Business Roundtable, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, and apartment developers like R.W. Shelby and Company and others of that type, is the so-called Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. The initiative has been scheduled for the November ballot and will appear there unless the state Supreme Court throws it off, citing numerous technical reasons. The state's political leadership is striking back in another way on this through a public campaign endorsed by Governor Gavin Newsom and organizations such as the League of California Cities, the Service Employees International Union, the California Medical Association, and the California Teachers Association. They're calling the measure the Taxpayer Deception Act and say the so-called Taxpayer Protection Act would actually eliminate state funding for paid family leave, disability insurance, gun violence prevention, and climate programs, as well as funding for road and infrastructure maintenance. But is this a fair assessment? Probably, as is usually the case when the business lobbies whine about difficulties operating in the largest economy and most vigorous consumer market in the United States, deception is an understatement. Fundamentally, the Taxpayer Deception Act would change the rule for the enactment of a tax increase from acquiring a two-thirds vote of each legislative chamber or passage by a majority of voters to a two-thirds of each chamber and a majority of voters. Obviously, this delays and limits any form of new taxation to election years, allows lobbyists a chance to create narratives and throw money at killing any new California taxes at the polls, and raises the bar significantly on what can and can't be passed. The initiative would also redefine numerous governmental fees as taxes, subject to the new rule, and perhaps most damaging, it would retroactively invalidate any revenue measures passed since January 1st, 2022, unless they are re-ratified in 2025. The initiative backers are hoping to ride generalized discontent with taxes to victory. The text bristles with rhetoric of the anti-tax movement of blaming higher taxes on bureaucrats, and it ties itself to Prop 13 by claiming the initiative stops politicians from using hidden taxes disguised as fees to drive up the cost of government services. 
as well as slogans straight out of U.S. conservative media tropes where Californians are struggling with the highest state tax, sales tax, gas taxes, and poverty rates in America. But the problem with that argument has always been the same. Voters specifically endorsed the current top tax rates at the ballot box in 2004, 2012, and 2016. And the truth is that the vast majority of California taxpayers don't pay anywhere near the top tax rate according to the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy. So who does? Well, the special interests behind this initiative. The highest marginal rates, ranging from 10.3 to 13.3, kick in for single filers with incomes over 350000 and couples with incomes of nearly $700,000 and higher. So, if you're wondering why executives sitting around the business roundtable might be jonesing for lower taxes, that could be your answer. And gas taxes? It's true that California's gas tax is the highest in the country at about 78 cents per gallon. But those taxes pay for benefits that most Californians would probably regret losing, like clean air technology and road and bridge maintenance. Also, a big part of the punishing price Californians pay for gas is what Severin Bornstein of UC Berkeley has recently identified as the mystery surcharge. That's currently a more than 40 cents per gallon difference that Californians pay in gasoline prices extracted by American big oil as an undefinable point of the gasoline economy. Borenstein traced the original surcharge to a price spike following an explosion in ExxonMobil's Torrance refinery in 2015. But the spike never disappeared, even after the refinery came back online. So where does all this leave us? Well, Prop 13 launched decades of government fees for the simple reason that the services and amenities California voters value still have to be paid for and Prop 13 left few other options for doing so. Adding the Taxpayer Protection Act could make that worse when funding needed services and amenities will be much harder. So, like so many times in the past, the enduring rule of California ballot measures applies here. If you want to know who will benefit from an initiative, just look who's putting up the cash for it. Then vote accordingly. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. This week in LGBTQ rights, several states are considering legislation that would create legal definitions for man and woman based on their reproductive organs. The controversial proposition legislation, dubbed by Republican lawmakers as the Women's Bill of Rights, now seen in West Virginia, Iowa, Georgia, and other states, has implications for the transgender community, which has been the target of conservative-backed restrictions nationwide. With critics already arguing that the restriction definitions will lead governments to no longer legally recognize transgender people, leading to discrimination and inaccurate identification practices. Proponents of the bill argue that the bills are intended to promote safety, privacy, and public data accuracy by defining sex under specific biological terms. Similar bills continue to spur heated discussions in committee hearings with waves of critics coming out in opposition. Bills in West Virginia, Georgia, and Iowa would legally define women and men based on whether they have had, will have, or would have a reproductive system that at some point produces, transports, and utilizes eggs or sperm for fertilization, respectively. The definition of a man, a woman, a girl, a boy, a father, a mother, a male, and a female would all be defined by one's sex and reproductive system, and not by their gender expression and identity. West Virginia's legislation argues there are only two sexes, either male or female, and that intersex people are not a third sex. Intersex people, the only exception, and who are estimated to make up about 1.7% of the population, are born with biological sex characteristics that vary from what is typically thought of as exclusively male or female. This includes ambiguous and abnormal reproductive organs, or chromosomes. 
but the intent of the so-called Women's Bill of Rights would mean that these new definitions would be implemented across large swaths of legislative code. These bills aim to restrict the use of single-sex facilities such as locker rooms, rape crisis centers, prisons, domestic violence shelters, and restrooms for transgender people and stopping trans people from changing their gender markers on IDs. But these women's bills of rights don't stop there. In Georgia, the bill removes sexual orientation and gender from the list of potential motivations for a hate crime. At least four states have passed similar policies, Montana, Tennessee, North Dakota, and Kansas. Legal advocates and LGBTQ activists argue that these bills aim to erase trans people from public life. Florida is now barring transgender residents from changing their genders on a driver's license, a move criticized by LGBTQ activists who say that when gender becomes rigid or cemented where people can't update those records, can't update the gender marker, it exposes people to widespread harassment and discrimination. Regular activities, such as applying for a new apartment, applying for a loan, or using your ID at a bar, could lead to discrimination if someone's gender and gender marker don't match. And by limiting the definition of sex so narrowly, advocates fear it could exclude the LGBTQ community from protections based on people's identity. These concerns extend to Georgia's removal of sexual orientation and gender from its hate crime law, particularly at a time in which physical attacks and threats on the LGBTQ community are increasing. Still, supporters of Women's Bill of Rights legislation argue that allowing the definition of sex to include gender and sexual orientation has serious negative consequences for creating equal opportunities for women, foster safety, protect privacy, and conduct research, and collect accurate data, according to the women's advocacy organization Independent Women's Voice. The groups say the so-called Bill of Rights simply clarifies the meaning of current sex-based laws and codifies current court precedents regarding single-sex spaces. But the anti-LGBTQ history of the multi-state measures backers would argue against this Bill of Rights being anything but just another legal attack on transgender communities. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In environmental news, in a step toward building the first massive wind farms off California's coast, three California Assembly members this week proposed a $1 billion bond act to help pay for the expansion of the ports. AB 2208, the offshore wind bond bill, would place a bond before voters aimed at helping ports build capacity to assemble, construct, and transport wind turbines and other large equipment. Long Beach and Humboldt County have plans to build such expansion projects. Port expansion is considered critical to the viability of offshore wind projects, which are key components of the state's ambitious goal to switch to 100% clean energy. The California Energy Commission project that offshore wind farms will supply 25 gigawatts of continuous electricity by 2045, powering 25 million homes and providing about 13% of California's power supply. The first step to building these giant floating platforms has already been taken. The federal government has leased 583 square miles of ocean water, about 20 miles off Humboldt Bay, and the central coast's Morro Bay to five energy companies. And the proposed wind farms would hold hundreds of giant turbines, each as tall as a skyscraper, about 900 feet high. The technology for floating wind farms has never been used in such deep waters far off the coast. An extensive network of offshore and onshore development would be necessary and upgrades to ports will be critical, along with undersea transmission lines, new electrical distribution networks, and more. The Port of Long Beach, for instance, is planning Pier Wind, a 4.7 billion 400-acre offshore wind turbine assembly terminal. One of the largest and busiest ports in the nation, it is the only location in California close to being able to assemble and deploy turbines, according to CalMatters reporting. The Federal Department of Transportation last month awarded the Humboldt Bay Harbor District 
426.7 million to build a new marine terminal where turbines can be assembled and transported. Two separate climate bond bills will aim to pay for climate-related projects such as shoring up vulnerable communities and wildfire prevention efforts. Each house has passed its own version of a bond, and negotiations over whether they will appear on the November ballot do remain open. But it has also been reported that offshore wind has raised many issues for California since it is experimental technology on a fast track off Humboldt County in Morro Bay. Humboldt officials hope the projects will boost their struggling economy, while some Central Coast residents are fighting the wind farms because they say it would industrialize their coastline. And the debate of climate change over adding debt comes as California faces a projected $38 billion deficit, according to Governor Gavin Newsom's estimate last month. But keep listening to KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, and we'll have more on this story as it develops. Before we go back to KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles would like to remind you that we are in our February fun drive. So here we are, pausing for the cause as we enter the throes of another election season to let you know that, as always, we need your help. Because even with everything happening in the world, if you watch mainstream news on cable, you know that independent media that isn't enslaved to the corporate agenda is more important now than ever. Without voices like KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, the only things you'll hear are what America's owners want you to hear. And the only choices you have will be the ones those owners allow you to have. So please pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this one-of-a-kind LA station. Become a member of our sustainer circle by donating $25, $50, or more and join the KPFK family. Think about it. KPFK is like the Hollywood Bowl, the observatory. East L.A. or the Santa Monica Pier, it's that part of the very fabric of L.A. bringing you commercial-free and independent programming with voices you just don't hear anywhere else. Voices from the community, your community, the voices of people like you that will say what's on their minds instead of what some marketing department told them to say. Voices of opposition, peace, defiance, hope, resistance in a world that seeks to silence the truth and enforce conformity. So please, go to kpfk.org and donate what you can to help KPFK keep these airwaves independent and free. Pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. And make your pledge today. Because as I always say, radio silence for a Los Angeles icon like KPFK would be a tragic loss for all of us. 90.7 KPFK, Los Angeles. From Santa Barbara, KPFK's Marcy Winograd reports on a new hire at City Hall and an old dispute between the city and its teachers, plus a protest of the Anti-Defamation League and debate over war spending. The city of Santa Barbara is hiring a new city administrator. Her name, Kelly McAdoo. As city manager of Hayward up in the Bay Area, McAdoo has decades of experience in California city government, including more than 20 years in Hayward, four years in Palo Alto, and about seven years in Fremont. McAdoo has been city manager in Hayward since 2016, a city with a population around 160,000, a city staff of about 900 people. Santa Barbara's population is almost 90,000, with approximately 1,000 employees. The city of Santa Barbara conducted a nationwide recruitment effort City leaders said that McAdoo's extensive background and strategic leadership makes her an exemplary choice. McAdoo's other credentials include bachelor's degrees in political science and international studies and a master's degree in public administration from the University of Kansas, completing the Harvard Kennedy School State and Local Executives Program and a leadership program with the International City-County Management Association. The last Santa Barbara City Administrator, Rebecca Bjork, retired at the end of the 2022 fiscal year after 35 years on staff. Bjork dealt with budget concerns that led the city to drop its economic development manager and use reserve funds to make up deficits in the budget. 
On Tuesday evening, Santa Barbara's public school teachers marched from the Unitarian Society of Santa Barbara to the Santa Barbara Unified School District, quite a distance, in what was the largest action organized by the Santa Barbara Teachers Association, or SBTA, in their struggle for a new contract. As teachers marched down State Street, dancing, beating drums in Mardi Gras fashion, their message was, fair pay, teachers stay. Teachers also chanted, 15-8 would be great, referring to the SBTA's most recent proposal of a 15% raise this year and 8% the following year. The union and the school district are still at loggerheads in contract negotiations. Their salary dispute led to an impasse declared on January 19th in stepped a state mediator. The union says teachers are approaching mediation with a sense of urgency, citing what they call a revolving door of educators in the district. Tuesday, February 13th, was the earliest mediation date offered by the state, but the school district chose instead to meet on March 5th, citing scheduling conflicts. Union President Hosby Galindo is disappointed with the wait time, saying he anticipates teacher openings that need to be filled. In the wake of the stalled contract negotiations, teachers are making plans to flee the district, asking for letters of recommendation as they apply for new jobs in higher-paying school districts. Quote, we're in the hiring cycle right now, Galindo explained to the press. If we have open positions, we need to be able to attract people here for the benefit of students. In other news, what began as a closure for a few weeks to stop the spread of COVID has turned into four years of shuttered doors for the Four Seasons Resort, the Biltmore. The closure resulted in about 650 employees losing their jobs and community whispers about the future of the hotel, what's going to happen, which before COVID had been one of the heavy lifters, one of the largest payers of hotel tax to the county of Santa Barbara. The resort's owner, Ty Warner, used the closure as an opportunity to renovate the property, as his company also did to the adjacent Coral Casino Beach and Cabana Club. While the Biltmore is supposed to open this fall, this reporter found it impossible to book a room until February 2025, as all the intervening dates had been crossed out. In anticipation of reopening sometime, the hotel recently applied for permits for renovations, which include turning guest rooms into retail space, changing landscaping to bring more light into the cottage bungalows, and a new guard shack. When the hotel closed back in March of 2020, it technically furloughed all of its workers, That means that employees were not laid off, so they were not paid any severance. Employees took legal action against the resort, and that action is still pending. Hundreds of people celebrated Valentine's Day with Paul Giamatti in Santa Barbara to recognize the actor for his performance in The Holdovers, Sideways, and lots of other films. The Santa Barbara International Film Festival honored Giamatti with the Cinema Vanguard Award on Wednesday night which was presented by his Sideways co-star, Virginia Madsen. The 2004 movie was filmed in Santa Barbara County and highlighted the Santa Inez Valley's wine industry. Giamatti told the crowd it's nice to get the award because we left a little part of our heart and soul in this place. It's been 20 years since the film debuted, but Sideways continues to showcase Santa Inez Valley wine tourism. The Santa Barbara Film Festival also brought a dozen Jewish Voice for Peace Santa Barbara protesters to Lower State Street where the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, had awarded its stand-up award to The Last Daughter, a documentary about an aboriginal woman who unearths the truth about her adoption by white parents. JVP accused the ADL of brownwashing its image to conceal the ADL's attacks on Black Lives Matter for supporting Palestine. Jewish Voice for Peace is a signatory to the Drop the ADL campaign, which published an open letter urging cities and organizations that partner with the ADL to sever their relationship. On October 25th of last year, the ADL sent letters to nearly 200 colleges suggesting the colleges might face legal action if they fail to investigate the activities of Students for Justice in Palestine. At this week's silent vigil outside a movie theater, protesters with JVP Santa Barbara held up signs that read, ADL equals hypocrisy and ADL equals the new McCarthyism. The most often asked question was, what is the ADL? In other news, two Democratic Party congressional candidates in the March 5th primary are taking opposite positions on President Biden's request for a $95 billion war spending bill, a supplement to the near-trillion-dollar military budget. Salud Carbajal, the incumbent Congress member, 
urges Republican leadership to bring the bill passed by the Senate to the House floor for a vote. Helena Pascarella, the peace candidate challenging Carbajal, denounced her opponent's attempt to rush the bill for more weapons to the floor. The National Security Supplemental, that's what the bill is called, would set aside $14 billion for more weapons for Israel, $60 billion for the war in Ukraine, $8 billion to further militarize Taiwan and East Asia, $2.4 billion to beat back the Houthis blockading ships to Israel, and over $9 billion in humanitarian aid split between Ukraine, Israel, and Gaza. In his press release, Carbajal says this package will save lives in the future. The men and women of our armed forces who could be called upon to respond to a wider conflict and new wars if Russia, in Donald Trump's words, does whatever it wants to in Ukraine. We know that it may not stop there if we do not approve this bill today. We still have to approve it eventually, writes Carbajal. Only next time it might be to defend a NATO ally. And it would just not be American dollars. It could be the lives of American service members and, yes, civilians. Pascarella, a public school teacher who hails from Ojai, issued her own press release saying, My opponent, Carbajal, seeks to aid and abet Israel's genocide in Gaza with an additional $14 billion in weapons that will only result in more death and destruction. Pascarella writes, Supplemental also allows the Biden administration to bypass Congress, to send even more weapons to jeopardize a regional, if not world war. Pascarella questions whether Carbajal's acceptance last election cycle of $73,000 for military contractors, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, etc., might be influencing Carbajal as he campaigns for more war spending. In Santa Barbara on Chumash Land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Washington's involvement, or is it meddling in presidential elections, came under scrutiny this week. And Don DeBar has more. Friday saw two bits of news relating to the struggle for power in presidential elections this year. The death of jailed Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny was announced Friday afternoon by the prison service where he had been serving his sentence. And here in the U.S., the first of four criminal trials facing former President Donald Trump has been set to begin in March. Nevertheless, it's Venezuela that's in Washington's crosshairs, with the threat of reimposing some suspended sanctions and adding new ones after that nation's Supreme Justice Tribunal Court upheld a ban on opposition presidential candidate Maria Corina Machado, barring her from holding office and upending the U.S.-backed opposition's plans for the presidential election later this year. That decision came after three of Machado's allies were detained on accusations of conspiracy amid growing tension between the government of President Nicolas Maduro and the U.S.-backed political opposition. Washington had conditioned a continuation of some sanctions relief granted in October in an electoral deal that was signed in Barbados and included removing bans imposed on a number of opposition politicians, including Machado. For more on that, we first go to Esteli Nicaragua to speak with journalist Stephen Sefton, and we'll also be joined later from Havana, Cuba, by Camila Escalante. Stephen, let's talk about what's going on in Venezuela. The, the whole business about Navalny is just an, another example of U.S. complete, uh, the, the complete cynical hypocrisy of the United States authorities. And look at what they're doing to Julian Assange, for example, where they've been persecuting him without any any real cause for however long it is now. It's getting on for 15 years now, more than 15 years. And then you have the cases of Mumia Jamal in, and, and uh, Leonard Peltier in the United States, who are only the most well-known, the most notorious cases of injustice in uh, political prisoners in the United States. And now they're uh, up in arms about somebody who was convicted under uh, Russian law of engaging in activities to destabilize and perhaps overthrow the, um, the, the, the government of the Russian Federation. What would happen to somebody in the United States who is accused of that crime? And so, you know, and they, they lock them up and throw away the key, you know? And so, uh, the, but we're well used to that kind of hypocrisy. That's nothing new on the part of the United States authorities. And in relation to the um, 
uh, event in in Venezuela that's very similar to the events of um, 2021 in the Nicaraguan elections when people who weren't even candidates were uh, displayed by or were misrepresented by the United States authorities and media as legitimate electoral candidates when they never were and 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 so what what does the, the, this that that case and this case now in Venezuela are an example of the way the United States completely disregards the um constitutional arrangements the legal arrangements the electoral arrangements the duly constituted behavior of the statutory electoral authorities in in in, in other countries claiming that there are abuses of the electoral system well in the case of this uh, person Karina Machado and she's as you said so rightly don she's been a leading figure in the Venezuelan opposition um not necessarily the electoral opposition but the the, the kind of extra parliamentary kind of golpista opposition that's committed to trying to overthrow has been committed to trying to overthrow uh Venezuela's electri- elected government ever since the the, the era of um our much lamented Comandante Eterno Hugo Chavez. And now she's been continuing that activity with individuals like Henry Capriles and others, who, who is actually taking part, uh, as I understand it, legitimately in the electoral process. But she herself has been disqualified by the electoral authority under the rules of, the, uh, of Venezuela's electoral system. And the United States refuses to recognize that. And this is just another example of the way the, the United States continues its destabilization recipe, which hardly varies from one, one year to the next or one decade to the next. It hardly changes. And in, in Venezuela now, they're trying to destabilize the elections scheduled for later this year. In fact, which are undergoing an extremely democratic process uh, whereby the, the the government and the electoral authorities are engaging both with opposition parties and also with the church, which is opposed the Catholic Church in particular, which is opposed to the government of um, uh, the the legitimate government of Nicolas Maduro, um, and and other uh, all, all all sectors of Venezuelan society to agree a program for scheduling the elections which haven't been scheduled for a fixed date so that's what they're trying to work out and they're doing that in the most democratic way under their electoral rules which are the same rules under which this machado um, opposition leader um, has been disqualified it's not that there aren't other opposition leaders uh, that might uh, take her place there are plenty of opposition leaders um, uh, uh, they're they're active in 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 Venezuela, so it's far from being a case of the only opposition leader being excluded, and that's just another example, as I said, of of, of U.S. destabilization in the region. No, the things that she's done, in essence, uh, you know, they would be considered treason anywhere else. She's called for support for the sanctions, first of all, that are injuring the country, the people in the country. I don't understand how it's even an electoral strategy where you. You know, stand up and say, um, the people that are around me are starving, um, make them starve more. But th- th- that's the kind of activity she was involved in. Who would tolerate that? Absolutely. No one would tolerate that. Certainly not in the West and certainly not the United States, nor Canada, nor the UK, uh, nor any of these major global North countries. If there was some sort of plot and authorities, the FBI, found some sort of information about an assassination attempt against the president of the United States, These people would be quickly rounded up, their homes would be raided, their computers and devices would be taken, all sorts of different things. And a lot of these opposition leaders, quote unquote, in Venezuela, were closely tied to or vocally supporting the assassination attempts, the magnicide attempt, the incursion into Venezuela over the last few years to try to overthrow the government. Venezuela's government has repeatedly denounced the different... uh, coup plots that have taken place that not only targeted specifically, obviously, the president, sometimes his wife, but also the head of the armed forces, you know, the defense minister himself, uh, some of the highest authorities of both the Venezuelan state, but are also leaders of the Bolivarian revolution today, the leaders of Chavismo. It's absolutely shocking what has been attempted or what has been carried out against Venezuela. And, you know, they've tried so hard to do the same things in countries like Russia, places like Iran and Belarus, and even to some extent in China. And Machado, just like Nalvani, 
are these dissenting voices, quote unquote, that these sorts of human rights organizations, such as the Human Rights Foundation, quote unquote, literally run by some opposition Venezuelan guy and the Oslo Freedom Forum, they select these so-called anti-corruption champions and these pro-democracy activists, and they give them huge international platforms and bringing them together with other of these pro-Western, pro-NATO, U.S. informants, uh, activists of the right wing, which are probably many of them formerly on the State Department payroll. And they want to use, you know, all these different events, such as the disqualification now of Machado and also now the death of Nalvani, to try to mobilize people to destabilize these countries once again. And they're using it as these different events. Um, as ways to try to bring people out into the streets and create havoc. So we know what's going to happen next. Hopefully audiences and people in other countries aren't fooled by this because we just see the same playbook over and over again in all parts of the world. And it's interesting that there's a common thread, for example, in funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, um, both between uh, Machado and Navalny, and pretty much they have a fingerprint on these little movements all around the world. I'd like to thank you guys for your time this week, and we'll speak with you again next week. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. In the Russian border city of Belgorod, at least six people were killed, including an infant, 17 injured, four of whom are children, in a Ukrainian missile strike that hit a residential and shopping area. Here's a report from a local journalist. A terrorist attack was carried out on Belgorod by the armed forces of Ukraine. The attack was carried out with the help of the NATO MLRS vampire system. All emergency services are already at the scene and are dealing with the aftermath. Belgorod will not surrender. We will continue to monitor the situation. More details with RT's Marina Kosareva. It all started at around 12.30 local time, so lunchtime for most people, uh, when Belgorod came under air attack. And as a result, uh, there was a school stadium uh, that was damaged, a shopping center heavily damaged as well. Also, we know that there were a number of residential buildings that were damaged, cars. And so far, we know that an infant is among the dead and also several kids were injured and have since been taken to hospital. Now, as soon as this happened, of course, there was uh, an air raid warning, which has since been lifted. And the governor of a neighboring uh, Bryansk region, which has also come under consistent uh, attack over the last two years since the military operation began, he said, well, this again is another sign and that shows that the Kiev regime is constantly targeting deliberately uh, civilians. And this is a sentiment also echoed by the foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zaharova. Another act of terrorism by the Kiev regime, which resulted in the death of civilians in Belgorod, including one child as well as many injured. This will be submitted by Russia to relevant international organizations, including the UN Security Council. But of course, we're not expecting the UN Security Council to do anything about this because they haven't done anything about all the previous attacks that we've seen on Russian soil, again, targeting civilians. Let's not forget that Belgorod, which, by the way, is just 30 kilometers from uh, the border with Ukraine. It's still recovering from its deadliest attack so far. And this was in December during the holiday season when once again, Ukrainian forces targeted civilians. And as a result, 25 people died there and around 100 people were in Injured. And once again, here we are today. We're not expecting to hear anything from the West and we're expecting them to continue supplying the weapons that are, then the Kiev regime uses to attack uh, Russian soil and Russian citizens. Hundreds of Palestinian medical staff members have been killed and injured in the past few months of Israel's onslaught on Gaza. Some of them have been directly targeted while involved in rescue operations. Moti Abu Musabe reports from Deir al-Bala. Since the start of the ongoing Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip, medical staff have been subjected to systematic attacks by the Israeli occupation forces. Hundreds of individuals working in emergency services across all hospitals and health facilities have been killed or injured while carrying out their duty of evacuating Palestinian civilians, who are targeted by the Israeli forces every moment. 
I'm Ayman Nasir, a paramedic working at Alexa Martius Hospital. At 6.30, we were informed that there had been an airstrike in Derebala. We immediately moved with the ambulances to the location. Once we reached the targeted area, the Israeli warplanes attacked a nearby place. Suddenly, a large piece of sharpnel hit me, causing severe bleeding. The next thing I knew, I woke up in a hospital. The doctors told me that my leg needed to be amputated. And as you can see, I lost my leg. All across the world, the special clothes medical staff were provide them with the protection needed during times of wars and conflicts, as guaranteed by international laws and regulations. However, the Israeli occupation forces are accustomed to crossing all red lines, seizing every opportunity to target and dismantle the health sector in Gaza a sector already suffering from years of inhumane siege by the Israeli regime. We face a lot of difficulties. We work with limited capabilities. The ambulances are obsolete. Every time we go to evacuate the injured, we are targeted by the Israeli forces. I have been targeted repeatedly by the Israeli drones. Even many of the people leading us to places attacked by Israeli warplanes have been targeted and killed. One of our ambulances was attacked by Israeli tanks and is now out of service. The only thing that explains the systematic Israeli attacks and the havoc wreaked in Gaza's health sector is the policy that the Israeli occupation has towards Gaza, which aims to increase the number of Palestinian casualties as a means of collectively punishing the people of Gaza. The Israeli genocide is still ongoing in Gaza. In addition to targeting health facilities and hospitals, they target the medical staff. We are talking about 340 Palestinian paramedics and doctors intentionally killed by Israeli forces, with 99 individuals kidnapped. And they are subjected to all sorts of brutal tortures, like what happened to Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmeya, the director general of the Al Shifa Hospital, who had his limbs fractured. Therefore, we demand all human rights organizations to fulfill their responsibilities and intervene to stop this genocidal war. It's worth mentioning that roughly 30 Palestinian health facilities were put out of service due to the relentless Israeli attacks that destroyed 134 ambulances. This has left the still-functioning hospitals totally overwhelmed with the high number of casualties while thousands remain trapped under the heaps of debris caused by the ceaseless Israeli airstrikes. The systematic attacks against the Palestinian medical staff working to rescue the Palestinian civilians come against the backdrop of the main goal the Israeli occupation regime is seeking, turning Gaza into an unlivable place and ethnically cleansing the indigenous Palestinians in the devastated strip. The demolition of a Muslim mosque in the Indian state of Uttarakhand has inflamed public sentiments across the country. Critics have condemned the demolition as an appalling and unlawful act. Press TV's Munawar Zaman reports from New Delhi. It's a day off for Zayed, a computer science student in New Delhi, hailing from neighboring Uttar Pradesh state. He wants to pursue a career in New Delhi, saying finding job is like a battle in this part of the world. But he is disappointed with the fact that elections are due and nothing more is important for politicians than stoking religious sentiments. The governments have their own agendas to stay in power and they want to win over and over again. So the easy tool is to exploit people on the issue of faith. India's people from all faiths and the politicians want us to stay uneducated. So we won't question them on their policies. We should be talking about education, unemployment, health care and good future for our next generation. After the opening of a major Hindu temple in the town of Ayodhya last month, anti-Muslim sentiments are running high in India. In the Himalayan state of Uttarakhand, the demolition of a decades-old mosque and its seminary has led to deadly clashes. The violence is the latest incident of communal flare-up ahead of general elections. Muslim sites have become a new target of the right-wing Hindu groups. In recent weeks, top Muslim leaders urged the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi to end the religious dispute, citing a threat to communal harmony and calling for the protection of Muslim places of worship.
election case since the bjp rule started in 2014 they are doing everything to destroy the country's secular credential they are taking the country in the wrong direction by promoting hindu first agenda to patronize the majority but this country has a constitution which we trust and believe in they raised a mosque in new delhi last week now in haldwani calling them illegal encroachment despite the fact they are decades old they are selectively targeting a particular community which is very unfortunate Experts say the demolitions are not confined to any particular region or state, but a deliberate attempt to demonize the Muslim community. Meanwhile, tensions have gripped the neighboring state of Uttar Pradesh, Bareilly city, after the arrest of an Islamic cleric who had called for protest against the demolition of the mosque. Human rights groups have called on the Indian government to halt this bulldozer campaign. Critics accuse Modi's government of failing to address growing incidents of violence and hate campaigns against the Muslim community. They allege the ruling party is stigmatizing its critics and adopting policies that legitimize violence against the religious minorities. The BJP denies the claims, saying equal rights for all is enshrined in Indian democracy. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. In your KPFK's Rebel Alliance calendar, the Catalyst Project Anti-Racism for Collective Liberation presents the 2024 Anne Braden Anti-Racist Organizer Training Program, a four-month intensive program designed to support white activists in becoming accountable, principled anti-racist organizers in multiracial movements for justice. The location is Orlando, Florida. This program will feature three in-person weekends. financial family and disability access, transportation and housing support as well as childcare and missed wages stipends is available for some participants. The program will meet in Orlando with covid precautions on the following dates. First weekend is May 10th through 13th, second June 21st through 24th, third August 2nd through 5th. This program is not limited to participants in Florida. Sessions will run from 10 to 6 on in-person days. Prices will be listed on a sliding scale as listed on the application. For info, go to collectiveliberation.org. LA Community Action Network LA Can is hosting a legal clinic with Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles at 838 East 6th Street, downtown LA, on the first and third Wednesdays from 4 to 6:30 p.m. February 22nd is the next legal clinic. For more information, call 213-228-0024. The 32nd Pan-African Film Festival is still running at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills Theater with the Black Fine Arts Festival at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza until February 19th. This year's theme is Get Inspired. For more information, visit paff.org for the largest Black History Month celebration in America. And before we sign off on this Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'll remind you one more time The KPFK is in its February fund drive and ask you to pick up your phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735 or go to our website at kpfk.org and help us keep listener supported 90.7 FM KPFK Los Angeles on the air. Become a member of our sustainer circle and join the KPFK family by donating 25, 50, or more. Real Public Radio for Southern California, the only place that can broadcast a message that is not approved by America's owners. So help us keep KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles on the air by picking up your phones and calling 818-985-5735. Again, 818-985-5735 or go to our website at kpfk.org and donate today, please. This has been your Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. I'd like to thank our engineer Wendell Handy and tonight's Rebel Alliance News contributors Marcy Winograd, Don Debar, and Paulina Vasiliev, and of course our show's producer Zeri Rideau. KPFK's Rebel Alliance News will be back on Monday, but stay tuned because coming up next is Soul Rebel Radio. Have a great weekend, Rebels! From the hashtag #NewCalExit YouTube channel, Red Star Report. I'm Hal Lore. for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News.
With the new car business down right now, you might think that we don't need your vehicle donation. However, the market for donated vehicles is very strong. Please donate your old car, truck, RV, or motorcycle to us at 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or online at kpfk.org. We'll take care of everything, and you'll help support the quality programming you hear on KPFK. 